Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. It's time to roll your sleeves up and get your hands dirty with Friends of the Earth. Dirt Radio. Good morning. Hello there. And uh, we are Dirt Radio. John here this morning, Monday, the 2nd of May. Where is the time going? Thanks very much to Yarra Bug and uh, Dirt Radio, of course, sponsored by Friends of the Earth Melbourne. Check them out at foe.org.au. And we are 3CR 855. A.M. We hear a lot about war and uh, refugees of war who are being forced to leave their homes and way of life as a result of conflict. What we don't hear much about are climate refugees. Those are whole communities who are also having to leave their homes and way of life because of the impact of climate change. Maybe it's not happening much right now, so it's probably not that newsworthy. But if global temperatures keep rising as they're predicted to do, the climate refugee is going to be a common phenomenon in the future. Ursula Rakova is from the Kararit Islands, and they're a group of low-lying atolls near Bougainville in Papua New Guinea. These islands are dealing with this reality right now. Ursula Rakova is the director of a community relocation program, and she was recently on a speaking tour in Australia, sponsored by Friends of the Earth. I was fortunate enough to talk to her about her work when she was in Melbourne during a tour, and I asked her what she was involved with and about her work. I am the executive director of a local organization that was initiated by the Council of Elders from Cartridge, basically to relocate 1,700 people from the Atoll to mainland Bougainville. We're in Australia at the moment, and probably we wouldn't really have much chance to go to a place where, like you've just talked about. Give us some idea of what your island community is like, what it looks like, what do people do there, those kinds of things I think would be very interesting for, for people listening. Cartridge is 86 kilometers of uh, Bougainville, uh, 54 nautical miles of the northeast of Bougainville. So the islands are very isolated, but they, um, just like any other Pacific atoll, the people are isolated, but they are peace-loving people. We live mainly off the sea. Um, our food is from the sea. Uh, we've been fisher folks for many generations. And how many people? How many people do live on the island? There is a, to- a population of 2,700 people, but we are also part of the um, outer atolls of Bougainville. Um, we are Melanesians, but they are uh, other brothers and sisters from uh, Feed Island, which is Nukumanu, 
Motlocks and Tasman. And we are all um, isolated from Bougainville, but we are all part of Bougainville as a province of Papua New Guinea. I've read that you are in the process, you've been involved in the process of lo- relocating your people from your island to another place. And I wanted to ask what's been happening environmentally that's re- being ma- making you have to do this. We have to move 1,700 people, meaning we have to move 150 families off Cartridge Islands due to impacts of rising sea levels, shoreline erosion, uh, frequent storm surges, and also our food is being lost because the land is getting smaller. Um, every year our seawalls are being washed away. Um, our food gardens uh, virtually cannot produce food that normally we would have produced many years back. Uh, so we, we have lost a lot of our food crops. And there is hardly any arable land where we can grow our food anymore. And this is why we have to move. Have you yourself seen this, these changes? Have you lived through these changes yourself? I was on the island three months ago. Uh, basically going back and seeing my family. Although we are based on mainland Bougainville, we frequently go back to the island to basically monitor the projects of uh, raised bed gardening and mangroves uh, planting on the island. So you have actually seen quite a bit of difference as well between the times that you've been there. I have seen big, big changes. One of the islands, which is um, an island that belongs to my clan, has been divided in half and the gap continues to grow each year. I was going to ask you, there's an expression we have in Australia, you probably know this expression, you're a little bit like the canary in the coal mine, having to, very few communities I think would be moving places the way you're having to move these things. I wanted to ask you, about some of the stages, because you, you've been involved in this and the stages that are involved in actually moving people. And my sense of it is that to relocate people, there's two stages. One is the local people that you have to move, and then the other stage is the, the people whose community the people will move into, they have to be prepared as well. We actually have a, a three-stage um, process in our program. The first stage is preparing families to move, as w- and the second stage is making sure the host community is is welcoming to the to the new people who ha- who will move into their uh, location. The third stage is basically making sure that both communities, the relocated families and the host community, are working together to continue to build these relationships. So the first stage uh, meant that we had to. Um, do a lot of uh, community assessment of how the islanders wanted to move, why they wanted to move, mm. what were they going to, to do when they moved to, to a new location. And in the second stage, we, we needed to get the host community to go back to the islands to experience their life on the island themselves so that they will be welcoming to our people. And so it needed a whole lot of these exchanges, working together, building relationships. 
And in our third stage, we we continue to build on that. We want to solidify relationships by integrating both the relocated families and the host community and making sure that we are strengthening uh, relations through our clan tie systems. So we are doing that. And it con- we continue to do that by making sure that we take part in the ceremonies of the host community as well as they taking part in, in whatever we do in our new location. Is there questions, issues to do with language? Uh, do the community speak the same language or are they different languages? Some of our cultural um, uh, ceremonies are similar, but the language of the host community is quite different from our um, vernacular on the island. But we are related through our clan systems, which is connecting us to each other. So people moving to the host community, they would basically they would have to become bilingual. Would that be right? Uh, that is right, and and already the the small kids, our the the children of the relocated families, are going to the to the school of um, the host community, and they they are learning um, songs. They have already learned the language, and some of them can speak the language. Go back to stage one. Stage one has already taken place. Is that right? You, you've already moved a number over nearly two thousand people. Is we, that the way it works? We we have moved ten families, so we are lo- talking about one hundred and three uh, individuals who are now relocated in our new site, and we we started moving them in two thousand nine, and in two thousand. Eleven, and you've been involved in this process as it's been going along. We, I was involved in a process from two thousand six onwards. Right, right. And the other thing I wanted to ask about was, um, in terms of stage two, going into the host community. I guess the reason, look, just to preface all this, I guess the reason I'm asking these questions is, like I said, you're the canary in the coal mine means that. To, to my way of thinking is you're kind of like almost like a case uh, 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 almost like a case that that needs to be looked at because the success or not or the difficulties obviously other communities are going to f- be following this as well the st- the second stage the hosts hosts getting familiar what were some of the issues that came up with that was there was there certain amounts of difficulties that you had to overcome to, to make them more accepting of people coming in? We, we did community profiling and surveys, community surveys with the host community, making sure that they fully agreed with um, with a new group of people coming into the community. We also did a uh, chief exchange program where we got the elders and chiefs from the host community and brought them to the island. And so they they saw the situation on the cartridge for themselves. And also we involved the young people to basically get together and and do speaking tours throughout the uh, host community communities. Right. Um, And so they did that as well as as that we we tried to uh, be involved in their ceremonies. And we also take part in in helping to, to build the schools uh, make sure that the schools, uh, uh, you know, they, they've got new classrooms so our community fully takes part 
we also take part in their voting system. We we no longer vote for politically. We 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 vote for direct in our host community. So it's it's a way of integrating the the communities together. Obviously, a very long process and a very you, you need to be very sensitive to all kinds of things. Let me ask you something, you know, along a little more personal line. Where did you get the knowledge to do all this? <laughs> this is a big skill that you have. I studied social work at university, so I guess I'm putting a lot of that into practice. But the elders of Cartridge actually approached me in 2006 and and asked me to help them. And so I had to basically leave my job and and just went back home and started to help my people. I read that you're raising awareness. You've been raising awareness in various international forums, including the UN. What do you tell people when you're doing that kind of thing? I, I think what needs to happen is that the, the big communities um, need to really, um, I mean, the countries need to, to speak to their own governments, you know. And, and governments like in Paris, a lot of the governments agreed or the countries agreed to to sign the um, Convention on Climate Change. But I think they should sign and ratify this convention so that they fulfill their commitment towards this agreement. Because the lives of many people affected by climate change heavily relies on this agreement. It's not just a cartridge. It's also other Pacific islands like Tuvalu, Kiribati, the Marshall <coughs> Islands, who are going through the same fate. Where will these people have to move to? So we need to act and we need to act now. Maybe finally, and this might be a good place to stop, is you're in Australia at the moment. What would you be telling Australians about about what they can do and how they can be involved and what they should be thinking about? Australia is a big neighbor in, in the Pacific. And Australia has the has the privilege to start thinking now. As a big neighbor in, in the Pacific, Australia has the ability to help us, to help low-lying atolls in the Pacific island nations in the Pacific. Australia needs to act immediately as impacts of climate change are getting worse. We cannot wait anymore. That was Ursula Rakova, and she's from the Carteret <coughs> Islands. Uh, they're a group of low-lying atolls near Bougainville in Papua New Guinea. She was doing a speaking tour around Australia, and I was fortunate enough to talk with her while she was in Melbourne. And we will put up some of the details of her program on our website, on the Facebook uh, page, and the website for Dirt Radio on the 3CR website. Uh, And we are Dirt Radio. Are you a book reader and collector? Could any of your books find a new home? Why not donate unused books to the upcoming Big Red Book Fair? This year, the book fair is on Saturday the 25th of June at Trades Hall from 10 till 4. If you have books to donate, please contact the New International Bookshop today on 039662-3744. That's 039662-3744. Or go to our website, newinternationalbookshop.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Between May 
4th and the 15th, a global wave of mass actions will target the world's most dangerous fossil fuel project in order to keep coal, oil, and gas in the ground. Here in Australia, there's an election coming up, and neither of the major political parties have committed to stop coal exports, and the coalition is even committing huge funds still to subsidize and promote fossil fuel mining. If fossil fuels keep getting used, we can all kiss global temperatures below 2 degrees warming goodbye. As part of the worldwide mass action this coming Sunday in Australia, hundreds of people will be converging at the port of Newcastle in New South Wales to engage in unprecedented non-violent civil disobedience. Phil Evans from Faux Melbourne and the newest member of the Dirt Radio crew, I've got to add, will be going up there and he's currently preparing for that day of action. Good morning, Phil. Morning, John. How are you today? Good. For those of us who can't get up there on the day, can you explain what will be happening? Sure. So um, kind of touching on um, your uh, last interview with um, Ursula Rakova, who was so inspiring when she was in Melbourne a couple of weeks ago. But um, a few years ago, people may remember that the Pacific Climate Warriors came across and they had built uh, canoes uh, um, that uh, um, they, they brought across with them across the ocean and came from, um, their, uh, from, their, from their islands to come to Newcastle and to join in a blockade of the coal port there. This is kind of an escalation on that point. So um, there were a few hundred people now. Um, we're expecting over 500 people to, uh, to converge in Newcastle and to, to really stand up and say, enough is enough. This is the line in the sand. No more. We need to take urgent action. And then Newcastle being the largest coal port in the world, you know, it seems uh, the ideal place to make that stand. And uh, you're going up a little bit early. Do you have a special role or a f- special function when you get there? Sure. So I'll be um, going up and joining as part of the facilitation team. So um, there's a group of, uh, of people from around, from all sorts of uh, different organisations, from community groups, um, who'll be joining together and we'll be, uh, we'll be talking about what nonviolence means and going through some of the principles that are underlying the, uh, all the actions that are happening around the world. So, you know, really talking about moving from fossil fuels uh, to freedom and seeing that through a just transition and a 100% renewable energy plan. So in Victoria at the moment, we know that we're um, looking at uh, places like the Latrobe Valley and figuring out how is it that we can uh, take that reliance off fossil fuels and move them into like uh, places where they can have jobs into the future. Of course, um, non-violence is an important part of all of the actions worldwide, so there'll be lots of training going on around that. But um, these, these these actions are mass escalations. So, you know, like it is about like taking it up to that next level and, you know, and risking arrest um, as a part of civil disobedience is a huge part of that and has been, you know, underpinning so many of the social movements that we've seen, especially in the last century or so. But um, also important is mass participation. So this is really about, not about individual groups. It's not one organisation or one community group that's leading this. This is groups of individuals coming together and speaking with one voice en masse. I think, yes, I was was going to say, I think the really interesting and and extremely important thing politically is this is a global day of action or a week, week, more more than a week of action. Um, Where else are these uh, things going on? Do you know? 
Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think there are now around about a dozen actions happening around the world. So there's um, actions uh, in the US, in Canada, um, just over the Tasman in uh, in New Zealand. Um, also in the Philippines, I know there's going to be an action um, in Germany where um, we saw the Ende Galande actions um, just a couple of years back now, which kind of inspired this uh, this break free movement to to move forward. They'll be happening, but excitingly as well, like countries like um, Nigeria, where you know, like there's been like you know, like such like a brutal oppression from uh, from companies linked to Australia and all around the world, and um, also from their government, they'll be taking action as well, as well as places like South Africa as well. So it really is a global movement. It's quite exciting. And uh, look, I want to turn to the Baird government in New South Wales. They've passed some very heavy-handed anti-protest laws. What sorts of strategic discussions will you be having around this? Sure. So, I mean, really what we've seen in New South Wales to me is the polluters in politics having far too much control. So um, as the the laws were going through, uh, I think the hashtag that most people were using to describe them was Santos Law. Um, in reference to um, Santos, the gas company, who uh, at the moment trying to put in over 800 gas wells in the Pilliga Forest. Um, really, like, you know, this, the laws themselves just are representing how much these, the polluters have undue influence on our governments, and that's what we'll be looking at in terms of it. In terms of um, increased fines and things like that, you know, civil disobedience always comes with risks, but we always encourage people to try and share that that burden out and, you know, like there's lots of ways that people can look to like, you know, fundraise for themselves to make sure that they can um, afford to take those fines if they need to take those actions. And, you know, we're just at such a critical road, like, you know, like uh, it shows that these sorts of acts of civil disobedience are really having a huge effect on um, on, on our corporate, on the corporations and also like, you know, scaring the government, mm. you know, about uh, what's going on. So we need to keep that pressure up, really. That's, that's the message of what we're getting out of it. Back to my original question, there's going to be so many people uh, who will be in Newcastle, but many, many people will be there in spirit, but not actually there. Are there some concrete things that we can do to show solidarity on the day or before the day that would would help out? Sure. So I would be keeping an eye on the, uh, if you're on the Twitter, on the hashtag, keep it in the ground, because... As you say, between the 4th and the 16th, there will be actions rolling out around the world. So um, really amplifying them and getting behind it. Um, jumping onto uh, websites, uh, groups like Friends of the Earth, uh, 350.org, um, Greenpeace, and finding out what sort of things are going on locally in your area and really getting behind those campaigns. Because ultimately, like this is a, this is a mass uh, symbolic action by us all converging in one spot, but afterwards, and, um, and even in the lead-up, we need to be out in our local communities and supporting frontline communities who are on the ground at the moment fighting the coal, oil and gas industry. So whether that be in the, the, um, in the Great Australian Bight in South Australia where the uh, BP are looking to do some oil drilling. Um, of course, there's the coal going all through New South Wales, the Hunter and uh, out at Shenwar, Moores Creek and places like that and Carmichael up in, uh, in, uh, in Queensland and then um, Pilliga Gas and... Uh, Plenty of uh, gas projects, unfortunately, around Australia. We've got heaps of work to do. This mm. is really just the beginning. So, look, Phil, we want to wish you all the best from Dirt Radio. I know you'll be up there, and uh, we hope you're keeping safe and uh, doing, but doing, doing important work. Thanks very much for keep taking the time this morning, and uh, we'll be in touch soon. Excellent. Thanks, John, and I look forward to seeing heaps of the listeners up there. Okay. And talking there to Phil Evans, he's a activist campaigner, 
new member of the Dirt Radio crew. He'll be back uh, with us on air very soon, going up to the Port of Newcastle for the weekend. Massive global action, part of a huge global movement to keep coal, oil, and gas in the ground. And uh, this is the Australian contingent's part in that global action. We're Dirt Radio. Come and join Melbourne's top musicians as they show their support for human rights. The concert, Fearless Music, features political, protest and freedom songs written by the world's best fearless songwriters. Singers include Ross Wilson, Stephen Cummings, Cash Savage, Liz Stringer, Mark Seymour, Jane Clifton, Rob Snarsky, Sean Kelly and Lisa Miller. Fearless Music, Sunday May the 8th at 3pm at the Mimo Music Hall in St Kilda. Book tickets now at mimomusichall.com.au Sponsored by Liberty Victoria, a 3CR supporter. This is David Rovix and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55am, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do. And everything can change. To radio where we are involved in promoting that change that David Rovix is discussing. We'll be back next week and uh, with some more and probably, possibly, a report on what happened over the weekend during that mass civil disobedience action at the Port of Newcastle. I'm John. We'll speak to you next week on Dirt Radio.